0: Hello everyone and welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Noura Erika, joined by Abu Rish and Bassam Haddad. We have decided to offer this podcast as a digest of news that reflects what's happening on the ground. We found that most activists, most analysts, most scholars, most people who are concerned have been overwhelmed by the barrage of information that stems from multiple fronts in this ongoing war on Palestine. That includes the UN and diplomatic front, that includes a geostrategic front, that includes most importantly, what's happening on the ground in Gaza um, and across. Palestine that includes the grassroots activism that's taking place as well as the backlash to it across multiple geographies. And it also includes a U.S. media landscape which has become a a battlefront unto itself. We want to consolidate this information both to offer a resource for people as well as to help mitigate the burnout that stands as a real risk at this moment in precisely a time when we need to continue moving forward and ahead to insist on an unequivocal ceasefire
1: thanks Noura. this will be a regular program of approximately 20 minutes while the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of israel's violence in the gaza strip we want to emphasize as we have individually done so elsewhere that israel's campaign against the gaza strip is not gaza specific it is palestine specific israel's so-called problem in quotation marks for the lack of a better word is neither hamas nor gaza but rather palestine in this sense israel's problem has historically been defined by two primary policies first to obtain the maximum amount of palestinian land with the minimum number of palestinian people second to concentrate a maximum number of palestinians into a minimum amount of land this is in practice and in comparative perspective, a settler colonial problem. It removes Palestinians and replaces them with Jewish Israelis and concentrates Palestinians and maintains the logic of separation through a system of apartheid that has been long recognized by Palestinian human rights organizations as such, and more recently by the Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, and the two major international human rights organizations, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. This has been the case since at least 1948 when Israel ethnically cleansed over 500 Palestinian villages and dispossessed over 700,000 Palestinian people. Since then, Israel has continued its policies of dispossession, displacement, concentration, and apartheid toward all Palestinians wherever they live, irrespective of the legal jurisdiction that governs their lives. Israel achieves its goals using civil war inside what is understood to be Israel proper— martial law in the West Bank, a mix of martial and administrative law in East Jerusalem, and all-out warfare in the Gaza Strip. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of this process, and by many accounts, one of its most violent iterations ever. Let us now turn to the details of this most recent iteration.
2: Ziyad? Thank you, Bassam. Uh, As many people know, on October 7th, 2023, the military wing of the Palestinian organization Hamas conducted an operation in which it broke through the Gaza-Israel separation barrier by land, air, and sea under a barrage of rockets that it had launched. Hamas subsequently seized control of the Erez crossing, raided and took control of several Israeli military and intelligence bases, and raided and took control of several Israeli towns. During that operation, Hamas fighters, along with potentially those of Islamic Jihad and others who followed after the breach of the perimeter, killed approximately 1,400 Israelis, among them military, police, and civilians. They injured nearly 5,000 more and took more than 200 hostages back into Gaza. Israel's response since October 7th has been to take its 17-year blockade of the 365-square-kilometer Gaza Strip and its over 2 million Palestinian residents and convert it into a total siege, preventing the exit of any Palestinians or others inside the Gaza Strip, while also preventing the entry of any commodities, humanitarian aid or observers. In addition, Israel has cut off its supply of electricity and water to the Gaza Strip. It's worth noting that prior to this total siege of October 7th, The United Nations claimed that more than 45% of the population of Gaza was unemployed. More than two thirds of them were living in poverty and more than 80% of the population were dependent on international humanitarian aid to meet their daily living needs. And this is nothing to say of the fact that more than 70% of the Palestinians in Gaza are refugees or descendants of refugees from 1948 and 45% of the population of Gaza are children. Israel has carried out a campaign of continuous indiscriminate bombardment since October 7th, which by now has lasted more than 21 days. In the first week alone, estimates place the amount and quality of Israeli bombing rates to have been equivalent to an entire year's worth of bombing during the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. As many people have heard, on October 27th and 28th, Israel declared the beginning of what it called its second stage of the Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip which has featured the total cutting off of telephone, cellular, and internet service in the Gaza Strip, combined with several ground incursions and what some claim was the most intensive bombing to date. Prior to then, the United Nations Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reported Palestinian casualties in the Gaza Strip to be over 7,000 Palestinians killed, another 18,000 injured, with 1.4 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip now officially designated as internally displaced persons. The Israeli bombing campaign has damaged or destroyed at least 40% of educational facilities and at least 45% of residential units across the entire Gaza Strip. Prior to this so-called second stage of October 27th, the siege and bombing had caused more than one-third of hospitals in Gaza and nearly two-thirds of primary health care clinics in Gaza to shut down due to damage or lack of fuel. Communications are just beginning to emerge from the Gaza Strip after the total blackout of October 27th and 28th. Initial reports are that the death toll has now exceeded 8,000 making the October 27-28 period of Israeli bombing one of the deadliest, accounting for more than 10% of all Palestinian killed by Israel since October 7. Israel's military assault on Gaza has been characterized by the Israeli president as one when there are no such things as civilians. This was paralleled with the Israeli Defense Minister's claim that he was dealing with human animals, in reference to the entire Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip. The West Bank, including East Jerusalem, has not been spared the Israeli escalation either, despite what many analysts consider to have been the most brutal and violent year of Israeli occupation there in over two decades. Since October 7th, the Israeli military has effectively sealed off major Palestinian urban areas from one another, making it nearly impossible for the movement of Palestinian people between them. Since October 7th, the Israeli military has killed 109 Palestinians in the West Bank and injured over 2,000. The Israeli military's arrest of over 1,000 Palestinians in the West Bank, together with the detention of approximately 4,000 Palestinian laborers from the Gaza Strip trapped in Israel or the West Bank since October 7th, has effectively doubled the number of Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli custody. Several reports indicate that new weapons have been distributed in coordination with the Israeli government to Jewish-Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem and throughout the West Bank.
0: Such genocidal intent, crimes against humanity, and war crimes are part of the Israeli military and political establishments, and it has not been in isolation. Since October 7th, the United States has provided, by its own admission, a steady, nearly daily flow of munitions, bombs, air defense capacity, and other key equipment to support Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip. US President Joe Biden, who has been affectionately referred to as Genocide Joe, has promised to ask for what he described as an unprecedented support package for the Israeli military, despite the fact that Israel is the unprecedented, largest cumulative recipient of US military aid since World War II, a full sum that exceeds all of US military aid to Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa combined. Beyond deploying two uh, two carrier strike groups to the Eastern Mediterranean as a show of force to try to deter Hezbollah or others from opening another front with Israel, the U.S. State Department circulated a memo discouraging U.S. diplomats from using terms like de-escalation, ceasefire, end to violence, end to bloodshed, and restoring calm. This is a clear message that the diplomatic corps has been deployed to also foment further war. Statements by. President Biden, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, National Security Council's John Kirby, have variously downplayed the death, destruction, and displacement of the Israeli assault on Gaza, going so far as to cast doubt on the Gaza Strip's Ministry of Health Statistics and claim that there are no red lines the U.S. is willing to impose on Israel as it carries out its assault. It's important to highlight here that it is not up to the United States as to what red lines are imposed on Israel, those are imposed by Yuskozian's norms that prohibit genocide, as well as international laws of war that limit, uh, that are delimited by necessity, proportionality, and imminence in warfare, all of which here have been crossed and abrogated in the name of fighting uh, an unfettered war against quote unquote, barbarians. This total US diplomatic and military support has manifested at the United Nations, wherein the UN Security Council, the United States and its allies have voted down at least two resolutions that call for an immediate ceasefire irrespective of whether the resolutions condemn the Hamas attack or not, and have put forward draft resolutions that seek to legitimate Israel's military assault on the besieged Palestinian population in Gaza, which Russia and China vetoed for their own purposes, of course. In the context of this gridlock at the Security Council, several states took to the UN General Assembly to make statements and try to issue a resolution culminating Culminating in the October 27th General Assembly resolution introduced by Jordan that calls for, quote, an immediate, durable and sustainable humanitarian truce leading to a cessation of hostilities. Note here that there was gridlock on language about about immediate ceasefire, which resulted in this other language that has called for a sustainable humanitarian truce. Even this was not supported uh, by the United States but has been supported by a vote of 120 to 14 with 45 abstentions. The the vote did reflect some divisions among the Western states supporting Israel. France, for example, voted in favor of the resolution while Germany, Italy, and the UK abstained. The United States led the 14-member bloc, voting against the resolution. These diplomatic maneuvers at the UN unfolded in the context of major statements and warnings by various UN agencies, as well as the International Committee for the Red Cross, lamenting the dire situation in the Gaza Strip, resulting from the Israeli siege and bombardment. At the more grassroots level, activists, scholars, and others have mobilized in a variety of ways to protest the onslaught of the besieged population in Gaza. Major U.S. and European cities have featured a wave of protests despite the tremendous efforts to suppress them, including criminalizing anti-colonial slogans from the river to the sea in Austria and Sweden, including an outright prohibition of protests in France and Germany. Activists affiliated with Jewish Voice for Peace and their allies in the United States have twice staged major occupations. On October 18th, several thousands of them descended on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., with a group of about 400 taking over the Rotunda and a major Capitol building. 300 of them were arrested. Then, on October 27th, as Israel inaugurated its second stage of the current onslaught, on Gaza, JVP activists and their allies staged an occupation of Grand Central Station in New York City, demanding an immediate ceasefire, culminating in the arrest of approximately 200 activists. Elsewhere, hundreds of artists signed an open letter to art organizations in support of Palestinian liberation, calling for a ceasefire and demanding that art institutions end their silence on what is happening in Gaza. Similarly, hundreds of scholars of international law conflict studies and genocide studies issued a public statement condemning the Israeli onslaught and warning of a potential genocide. Over 150 members of law faculties across the United States issued an open letter to president Biden, describing Israel's onslaught as a moral catastrophe constituting quote collective punishment and demanding Biden move to establish an immediate ceasefire and restore restore the flow of electricity, water, and food into Gaza. These three statements are just the tip of the iceberg as academic associations, departments, and ad hoc coalitions issue a plethora of statements condemning the Israeli assault. The explosion of statements along with teachings and demonstrations have been in part a reaction to the leadership of many colleges, universities, and other institutions that have issued pro-Israel statements while simultaneously seeking to censor, stifle, or otherwise fail to protect the academic freedom and freedom of speech of those in support of Palestinian liberation, including the safety and security and well-being of their Palestinian Arab and Muslim students who in this moment, rather than be recognized for the grief that they are enduring, have been securitized and attacked from the top level of administrations, as well as from the US Senate. Israel's war on Gaza has reverberated into a war on Palestine solidarity. US and other Western media outlets have worked hard to prioritize the official Israeli narrative of what is happening. Despite the significant inroads made by critical scholars and analysts over the past few years, there are key indications that there is an executive level decision to ban or limit views critical of Israel as attested to by several incidents that have been reported and the overwhelming number of complaints that have been referred now to Palestine Legal, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, the Center for Constitutional Rights, and others.
2: It's all you, report highlights the vast discrepancy between what governments are doing versus what people on the ground are asking for. This is certainly the case across the Middle East, where protests in Egypt, Jordan, and elsewhere have defied existing attempts to stifle all popular mobilizations or only allow those orchestrated by their authoritarian regimes. In this context, the recent refusal of Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority to meet with President Joe Biden during his last trip to the region, coupled with their autocrats' public statements critical of Israel, reveal an increasingly difficult bind these three regimes find themselves in given their record of collaboration and subcontracting for the Israeli policies in the region. One regional authoritarian regime that has played a particular role is that of Qatar. Having hosted several Hamas officials for several years while also being a linchpin of the regional order, the Qatari regime has emerged as a mediator in the ongoing attempts to release hostages taken by Hamas during its October 7th operation. To date, four hostages have been released, and Qatar claims important progress has been made toward a larger number of hostage releases, though the Israeli government has denied any such progress has been made. Speaking of the hostages, it is worth noting two recent developments as of October 28th. First, Hamas has publicly offered to release all hostages in exchange for the release of all Palestinian prisoners. On the other hand, families of the Israeli hostages have apparently publicly broken with Israel, the prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu, first calling for an immediate meeting to be given a clear indication of how the new phase of the military assault will affect the negotiations, if not well-being of the hostages. And then in unverified reports yet, a small group of them declaring that they are prepared for an all for ours, all for theirs exchange. Of course, the greatest and most devastating development remains the Israeli assault on the Palestinian people of the Gaza Strip and across Palestine. We are yet to fully understand what took place beginning October 27th with the communications blackout and massive escalation and bombardment complemented with what appears to be a third military incursion by Israel into the Gaza Strip during the past 48 to 72 hours. We are hoping to know more by the time of our next broadcast, though our hearts ache given what we already know even prior to the last couple of days.
1: As we end our first program, I'd like to turn back to Noura to zoom out a little from this detailed and thorough rendering of developments thus far to perhaps take stock of what might be done or what is most important to keep focused on in this current moment of devastation and destruction
0: at this moment we are 23 days into an unregulated assault on a 2.2 million person besieged population in the Gaza strip 23 days where israel has been supported by world global the, the world superpower in the form of the us in unfettered military aid and diplomatic support in blocking all efforts to cease this onslaught as well as to come to an international resolution. that has been This has been compounded by a media that has fomented war as well as other European capitals that have cut aid to Palestinians when they are in dire need of it, as well as to criminalize protests again to manufacture consent that supports an unfettered onslaught against a besieged population in the Gaza Strip this point, there is still confusion amongst peoples as to what is happening. This has been wrongly framed as a war against Hamas. We must emphasize that this is not a war against Hamas. This is a war against Palestinians. This is not even a war. This is a campaign waged with genocidal uh, intent aimed at terrorizing a Palestinian civilian population, at forcing them to be, to move, to seek shelter where there are no humanitarian corridors, in order to complete what most Palestinians have described as a second Nakba that seeks to displace them to the Sinai Peninsula. If this were a war, we have to examine that Israel's uh, has has dropped the equivalent of a nuclear bomb onto this population in the course of 23 days, and yet achieved zero of its military objectives. It has not released hostages. It has not diminished Hamas's capacity to fight. It has not eradicated Hamas. It has not turned the Palestinian population against Hamas. How is it that they can use this much force in 23 days without legal regulation fail to achieve its military objectives and be given the green light to continue. Here we see in the most sterile language of international law that the civilian harm far, far exceeds the military advantage that Israel seeks um, in this moment. Israel has targeted 29 of 35, excuse me, Israel has targeted 29 owner schools eight of which were providing shelter at the time has targeted 12 out of 35 hospitals that are critical to ensure life has cut off water has cut off electricity has bombed humanitarian convoys has prevented the creation of any humanitarian corridors we must understand this as a genocidal campaign and if we understand it as such as defined by the 1948 genocide convention which has two critical elements both genocidal intent as well as specific as well as specific underlying acts which have been demonstrated exhaustively by legal scholars genocide scholars legal institutions then we m- must also agree that there is no condition on how we apply ceasefire now. There is no legal or moral code that justifies genocide, not in the name of self-defense, not in the name of national security, not in the name of achieving any kind of resolution. There should be no equivocation on demanding an unequivocal ceasefire now, not just to cease the hostilities, but literally in order to stem a genocide.
1: Thank you, Noura and Ziad. This concludes our first episode of this podcast, a regular program of approximately 20 minutes, probably gone longer on this first uh, edition, comprising updates on what is happening on the ground in Palestine, as well as some focused analysis on how to make sense of those developments. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziyad Aboulish and Noura Aliqat. Research for this program was conducted by Anas Al-Khatib, Mays Al-Alam, me, Sarah Al Ayad, and Find out more on palestineandcontext.org and we hope to see you again very soon.